DSI, or Decentralized Science Session at Foresight's Vision Weekend in France in 2021. Join Philip Collinger from the DSI Foundation and Foresight Fellow, Niklas Rintor from LabDAO and Vincent Weiser from VitaDAO as we discuss how crypto commerce can speed up the very process of scientific discovery. We ask each of them to produce notes for a technology tree that represents the various uh, items that they're working on, and you can find those slides in the YouTube videos. Enjoy the session. What can we expect from just producing or like doing better science? How can we incentivize better science? How can we solve things like the replication crisis? Like all pretty major, I think, feats that if we got around to solving them, we would speed up the entire machinery of stuff that we just discussed. Okay, so Vincent, I just got off your slide. So you're the first one you're to share a little bit. Where do you want to be going and how can people help? There would have been open the handwriter would have been better. So yeah, maybe to, to start off with the general, of course, it's like the first stage, I think, is just the underlying technology being really enabled by Ethereum, kind of just like smart contracts and like more functionality than like kind of the first wave with Bitcoin and like more yeah, simple technologies. I think the the early, of course, promise was what we also explored with VitaDAO is kind of uh, DAOs as a new primitive to yeah, organize resources and, and people. And I think that's kind of like the thing, of course, we are exploring with VitaDAO uh, to fund longevity research. So I think ultimately it's these different building blocks kind of like um, on the one side, the technology with like um, Ethereum, as well as even on the real world side, kind of uh, building blocks that connect to the real world, like in our case, um, kind of like the primitives to bring patterns and laws into like um, abstractions and primitives in, in crypto. And then I think on the capabilities, there's, of course, a, a bunch of different um, solutions or, or kind of interesting um, things that are now kind of emerging. I think one, of course, is DAOs, kind of like such as DAO. I think like we are, to be honest, one of the only first ones that uh, kind of funded real research. Then there's a lot of ideas more on kind of like decentralized journals, decentralized funding. Um, but I think it's just really starting. So I think most stuff was actually, yeah, more actually on kind of crypto philanthropy, for example. Mm -hmm. But, um, even on simple donation experiments, um, it, it, it's just starting to, yeah, get explored more broadly beyond just send money to this Ethereum address to like more experiments that are like quadratic funding, kind of like, uh, Maybe uh, yeah, so so very very briefly the idea is to have a matching pool could be the state could be like a uh, donor and then almost like in the, the democracy you can vote with your money and like get matched based on for example one project getting like a lot of donors it gets a higher match and one dollar gets kind of the highest potential match and then it levels off pretty hard so kind of one dollar might get a hundred dollar match and then two dollars hundred ten dollars so you're really incentivized to help select out of the projects. And for example, it could be used for public good, like research or climate change that people could, like the state could say one million for climate change. And then you were incentivized to donate to climate change because you can influence which uh, things should get donations. And I think that was explored, of course, with Gitcoin for Ethereum ecosystem. But we just started like last week, basically doing it for like climate and longevity and stuff. So 
and, and that was fairly straightforward and the idea was out there four years ago, but really takes a while till the also community forms to, uh, do like filters. And I think now there are like a lot of ideas, of course, on everything from like decentralized journals and like DAOs, like the constitution DAO people trying to buy journals mm. and like a bunch of wild years that like some might not make sense. Some, um, uh, Ultimately, also, like, you, I think you need also to rethink it. So just, like, buying nature might not solve the problems, but maybe you need to come up with a better, like, incentive structure for journals. Yeah. So maybe I head it to Niklas or to you. Sure. Whoever, let's see on the Russian roulette slideshow, who's next? Niklas. Looks a lot like me. Um, yeah, hi. I'm Niklas. I'm also working at Vida Dao with Vincent. And uh, my intent tree takes a bit of a step back and really thinks through the process of which I think science is being done, which is really that in the beginning of every scientific project, there is a need for capital, there's a need for funding. And I think that's something that we're building with VitaDAO, where VitaDAO is really one, I think, of the first decentralized web-based funding organizations where people come together and they allocate capital and they use tools like Gitcoin to also raise funds for nonprofit research. But it's not only the funding, it's also the execution. That's currently what's happening in university labs and independent research labs. And that's this sort of manual process of performing the experiment, interpreting the data, forming a new hypothesis, and repeating that process. And I call that uh, basically the execution phase. And I think that what we need is the community or marketplace to exchange laboratory services. And I can double-click on that in a moment. Then I think the third step, and you already touched that, is distribution. So it's funding, execution, distribution. And when we talk about distribution, we talk about projects like Open Access DAO and, and other projects. And I think Zilka was pretty accurate this morning when she said that next year is probably going to be the year <laughs> of the DAO. I, I fully agree here. Um, so with Vita DAO, we have this web-based funding organization. I think there are many more that are going to, are going to come, and we have... Home access styles and other projects that really care about, okay, how can we, how can we distribute signs and also new insights in, in a, in an open way? And, uh, I think what's kind of missing is the execution part. So how can scientists come together and reduce the friction that is related to actually running an experiment? And this is where I think a, a DAO could emerge and that's all about exchanging favors between laboratories. So I have this one PCR machine, but you have a Western blot and you can run this Western blot really well. Can you just, you know, add this one drug that I'm currently investigating and do the Western blot and I can do the qPCR for you. And basically this sort of Craigslist for science. Lab bartering. Yeah, I call it lab DAO. <laughs> um, basically a, a peer-to-peer protocol that looks a lot like Craigslist in the beginning could actually turn into something very automatic in a very liquid marketplace for laboratory services. And I think that would, that's basically one of the missing building blocks that could really, um, achieve one of these capabilities that I'm listing here, which is unlock hidden global talent. You know, there are a lot of people all across the world that have interesting ideas, but they don't have the capital. And they don't have the laboratory to actually test the one molecule they have in their mind on a mouse, right? Now, I think in the world that we currently live in, you could raise the capital to run the experiment, but then you still don't have the lab. So what if you could also find someone that does the experiment for you and actually funnel, funnel the capital to that person? Um, and I think then that there's also this sort of breakdown of disciplinary boundaries that could happen because 
uh, when people have the freedom to operate across laboratories and coordinate their services across laboratories, then these sort of very physically constrained boundaries that we have, you know, in our current university campus where the biochemistry department is over there, the physics department is over there. So you're never going to think through, okay, you know, what, what laboratory equipment does the physics department have that I could use for my biochemistry? Um, and so on and so forth. So making that more visible and turning basically then to a more liquid market, I think is truly relevant. And then, yeah, I think the very end goal is really accelerate human progress in biomedicine. Wow. Lovely. Thank you. Um, well, I think, you know, definitely what you said about the interdisciplinarity, like that is something that we're trying to do is like hard. And if, if, if only we had a web service that like easily got that going by just creating lab services. And I think in almost every one of our biotech seminars, there's always the, the goal. Um, there's always someone who's at one point saying this, like, Oh, if I had known that you wanted that, like I could have done that in this experiment, you know, and like, it's always like, you know, you know it after the fact. And so I think coordination on that end would be really, really valuable uh, as well. Okay. Philip, you are up next. Philip, tell us a little bit about what DSI is. You actually claimed the domain, didn't you? <laughs> we did. Yes. Uh, so. Let me talk a little bit about why I'm excited about decentralized science. So, um, so I'm a scientist by training. I've been working as a professor like for, for over 10 years now. And, uh, for me, really the, the most exciting thing about web three and DSI is the possibility that we can basically rewrite and reconstruct the institutions of science and the incentives that scientists have and also the way that they're rewarded and uh, and finance we can basically rewrite all of that from scratch and this is huge guys because currently the institutions that we have they're very very difficult to change and they're far from optimal um just to give you two examples so we have in many fields of science we have a raging replication crisis um there is very little incentives for scientists to actually engage in replication because that's usually not what gets into the top journals. The top journals, they want novelty and they want surprise. But guess what? When, you know, if something is novel and surprising, it's also less likely to be true. Uh, and that creates an incentive problem, right? So if everybody tries to find something that is novel and surprising, uh, we end up with a, with a literature that is full of stuff that doesn't replicate. And now there is emerging evidence that uh, we really have a raging replication crisis. So um, in the social sciences, but also in the medical sciences, uh, there were a couple of large um, studies that tried to replicate the top studies in their field that were published, for example, in Nature and Science and in the top journals. And typically they find replication rates of 50% or lower, meaning that if you read an article that was published in Nature or Science, the likelihood that you actually read something that is true is as much as a coin flip. That's a bloody disaster, right? So, I mean, if you cannot trust science, then everything downstream is broken as well. Technological innovation depends on science. Medical progress depends on science. The decisions that we make in society depend on science. If you cannot trust science, we're screwed. So, and I think really the problem here are the incentives that scientists have and the institutions behind them. And uh, just another example for, for how broken the system currently is. So the, the current publication system, uh, it, it is basically dominated by, by five companies, by five for-profit companies. So it's basically, it's an oligopoly. 
And their business model is either they charge scientists to pay them to publish their work that they're doing for them for free and also do the referee services for free and the editorial services for free. So that's one model. The other one is you don't pay, but then all the work ends up behind a paywall and neither your colleagues nor the public that actually finance your work can read that work, right? So in that way, they, uh, so the publication industry is actually, the scientific publication industry is in terms of market size is comparable to the movie industry or the music industry. It's a gigantic industry. They have a profit margin of about 40%. And a large part of that basically comes from the pro bono work that scientists are doing for them by doing referee work and editorial work and authoring work for free. It's a multi-billion dollar donation that we make to the publication industry and they walk away with the profits. So there is something fundamentally screwed up here, right? And I think with, with DSI, we can go to the roots and we can try to create an economic, basically a scientific ecosystem that is not simply copying what we're already doing into a web three world and putting everything on chain, but we can literally rewrite the institutions and uh, the, the incentives that people have. So in terms of enabling technology, so some of the things that come to mind are, of course, smart contracts. So, you know, platforms like Ethereum or Solana. Uh, very important point is uh, P2P content addressing and storage. And of course, DAOs. And basically with these enabling technologies, some of which are really, really new. Uh, and, you know, we haven't been really able to use them for very long. But now that they're out there, we can do things like we can have scientific manuscripts, data, and code stored on the permaweb, immutable, accessible for everybody, as computational objects on which we can then operate the scientific consensus mechanism, which is basically a fancy way of me saying peer review and selecting the work uh, that is actually you know most important for a scientific field. So we can build a science microeconomy that that would actually change the incentives towards rewarding not only novelty but also replicability. So we would we would probably be able to recouple the incentives of doing something novel and and uh, surprising with incentives to do science that actually replicates. Um, we could also reward quality and speed, for example, for peer reviews in a much much better way than than we currently do. Uh, and of course, this is where, where you guys are the, the pioneers. We can have new ways to, uh, to develop funding, uh, instruments for, for research, but also for science related services such as peer review that are much faster, more targeted and more capital efficient than they are in the current world. And with that, I think we can actually build, um, science that is more reliable, more transparent more independent and more openly accessible. So that's what I'm dreaming of. And that's why I'm in the space. Great. Lovely. Do we have, oh, lots of hands up and I didn't even get to ask the question yet. Okay. So, uh, you then, you, you didn't get to ask your question before. So I'll go to you next and then it continues. And uh, if we have time, we go over here. Focus. Okay. Wow. Okay. Let's go fire away. Uh, fire away. I'll leave. <laughs> How, how do you feel, like, what is an example that you can think of how to actually reward replicability? Um, because I feel like there's a, yeah, just difficult to make an example. Yeah, um, I can speak to that too, but go for it. We're ring solving it. So one simple way how you could do that is by having replication bounties uh, on new scientific discoveries where 
for example, the you know the the magnitude of the uh, of the replication bounty could depend on how important the contribution is to the field, right? So it could depend, for example, on the ratings that that referees and editors give to a particular scientific uh, paper or the number of uh, you know citations that a paper has gathered. And you can literally basically have a price that says, well, uh, here's 10,000 10, bucks or 20,000 bucks or whatever. And for you guys out there in the scientific community, we want you to replicate what the study did. And you submit an analysis plan uh, that describes exactly how you're going to do that. And then there's going to be referees that are basically just going to look at your uh, analysis plan. And they're going to decide if, you know, if this potential replication approach is actually well-powered if it makes sense. And if it is, you may be eligible to claim a part of the replication bounty, independent from whether the empirical result of your experiment is actually replicating the original study or not. So that would be one way of doing that. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, the scientists. The scientists are claiming the money. Who's paying? Who's paying, paying the, the money? Bounty, what's the incentive of someone putting up a bounty? Right. So, I I think that there is at the beginning to bootstrap such a such a system. I think we do need to rely on uh, on patronage, right? On basically on goodwill. And I think the good news is that. There is a lot of people out there uh, that that have money and they want to don uh, they they want to actually do something meaningful with it. So I do think we have a shot here, and you know the the, the work that you guys are doing is this exemplary of that. Okay, right. we have and just tag along that very quickly. The moment that you have a scientific result that is relevant for biotechnology that could turn to a therapeutic, there's yeah. a real commercial interest. So a technology primitive that we use is an IP NFT which is something that the researcher creates and then really aligns the incentives for the scientist and the potential acquirer that that's a solid piece of science. So that's going to be priced into the IP NFT. The market is going to basically decide what's the value of that science. And then obviously people will be interested in pressure testing that insight. Yeah. Okay, we have time for one more question. So thanks, this is a great... Uh, yeah, the publishing industry is for. 450 years old, the disciplinary structure is 200 years old, the funding has never been sorted out, it's a higher <laughs> yes. uh, creative industry that doesn't right. work. It seems from outside it works, it doesn't work. Right. Uh, I suggest that we step back a little bit, given where we are. Yeah, so the question is, how do we generate new knowledge on this planet in which there are 8 billion soon, 10 billion brains wired together with 1 trillion signatures? And, and this whole system is generating this knowledge in a way that we have some kind of way of testing what kind of statements can we get away with. Yeah. Maybe that's one step. But the one step is the generating those statements. Yeah? Yeah. And I'm extremely skeptical about the solutions that you put up so far uh, that you suggested. Because when, when we see something like Oxford University, one of the largest departments, we tried a version of this. It was not as clever as we have, but we could... There are 80 labs. People could use each other's labs. There was almost zeros. Because everybody was very careful regarding 
their level of faith. And unless there's a giant amount of money coming from outside, uh, I don't see how it's going to happen. And every time when we, we, it, we try to have some kind of funding coming from outside, 5-10% of the total cost comes in. So maybe there are some people out there who are willing to add an additional 5-10%. But the remaining 90, 95% needs to come how some come somehow from the state. Please answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was more common. I'm getting out of it. Okay, just two two remarks related to that. So first of all, I I think yes, fixing science is an incredibly complex problem, and uh, so I think. There, there are a lot of things that actually need to be fixed and there is probably not going to be a universal solution for all of them. But what is really cool here is that basically with this Web3 toolkit, in principle, we can give the scientific community the tools that they need to figure out how they can actually make it work, right? So because now we can actually, you know, we, we, we can develop incentives and institutions from scratch. We can try out, we can literally do randomized controlled trials that tell us what works and what doesn't. Completely impossible up to now, right? Who are these institutions? So I'm, I'm talking about science institutions, right? So people have said, yes, exactly, right? And the, the second thing Go is, I, down in, in a minute. I, I do agree with you that in the long term, the government will have to play a role in this because they are the ones that are primarily responsible for providing public goods. But I'm not optimistic that they will be an early adopter or that they will be much help at the beginning. If anything, I, I think they will be late adopters. <laughs> Thank you. Any final words from you guys? No. I, I think I think what we're seeing is a Cambrian explosion of science-related DAOs and projects. So there's going to be some kind of evolution or na natural selection of what mechanisms work and which doesn't. And we have now the building blocks to bridge this valley of death when it comes to bi like biotechnology translational science, because scientists can go direct the same way that artists could go direct with the NFT craze. Now scientists, now scientists turn. We're the original creators, and now we can go direct. We can sell our ideas. We can market the IP we generate. So I think this is a really exciting time to be a scientist. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.